Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. From NBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Katie, Youngster, Eva, and Jennifer were all around the area and involved in one way or another in Catalina's murder. Were they witnesses, Good Samaritans, accomplices, or the killers? It's still too early to make a determination, partially because none of the four can seem to get their story straight. Did Jen walk up to the scene as Eva was about to run for help? Or was she standing outside when the other three came out to investigate? Or did she casually walk around the corner after Eva had run to the office? We don't know because there is zero consistency in any of their statements. But the confused quartet were not the only people in the area during the critical moments in question. Seemingly, in the middle of all the chaos, a couple of fellas just happened to wander on into the scene. This is Season 10, Episode 18, Red Rock and House. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. At first glance, Red Rock and Housen appear to be, well, let's say, shady characters. Red Rock is described as a dope fiend and a guy who's always bothering people. Even Housen told police that he didn't think it was odd at all when Jen shooed him away from the scene. But shockingly enough, when you really lay out the transparencies, as we've been calling them, and compare, overlay, and contrast every statement that we have about these two guys, they are actually the most consistent element of this case. The page from Craig is not an anchor. The time of death doesn't seem to be an anchor. The 911 calls, they're not anchors either. Red Rock is the anchor. There was a time during this investigation when I really believed that Red Rock and Housen were our most likely suspects in Catalina's murder. At the time, I was operating under the assumption that the fake voice screaming incident actually happened and that no one from the upstairs apartment was involved at all. I thought, well, here's Occam's razor staring us right in the face. These two guys pop up out of nowhere right after Eva runs to the office? It's just too convenient not to be a part of the crime. 
I mean, we're all wondering, why did no one see the killers leave? Well, it must be because they were hiding in plain sight. My thought back then was that they must have hopped the fence when Eva ran off, saw Jennifer standing there and thought, oh shit, I thought we were alone, and Red Rock quickly came up with a reason as to why he was there. It sounded like a plausible theory at the time, but I can tell you now that I am certain that this is not what happened. Before we get into Red Rock's statement to police, I first want to refresh all of our memories on how Jennifer herself says that the interaction went. And I guess before I read Jennifer's statement, I need to at least point out that Youngster in his statement claims that Red Rock and Housen were standing outside when he, Katie, and Eva all went out when they heard the screaming. Now, as I said before, I'm pretty positive that didn't happen, at least not in that way. I think that he probably saw Red Rock and Housen through a window, but for what it's worth, that is what he said. The following is from Jennifer's first statement. In this version, when she returns from Janet, she finds Eva standing out front yelling into the apartment, asking if everything is okay. They hear the strange voice, and then Eva runs off. From the statement. Eva ran around to the office to call the police. I ran to the front door, which is under the stairs. I was still talking to the voice when Eva left. I wasn't sure what happened, but I started knocking on the door and was hollering that the police was on the way and for her to let me in. The voice answered again that she was okay, that she just had hit her head. I kept knocking and was shaking the door and told her I wanted to come in and see if she was okay. At that point, she stopped answering me. This made me start knocking on the door more, trying to get in. At about that time, a black male I know as Red Rock came walking around the corner. He was with another black male that I don't know. Red Rock lives in the project and is always asking people for money. He said, where's the Mexican that stays upstairs? I figured he was talking about Eva because she is half Mexican. I told him Eva was asleep and for him to go home. I know for sure he smokes dope and I don't like him. I try to dodge him every time I see him. When I told him to go, he started asking me what was wrong and where was Eva and what was I doing. I just told him to go home. And then Red Rock and his friend left. Now, let's keep track of the details of the interaction as we move along and add more layers to compare and contrast. So here, in Jennifer's statement, she says that she was knocking on Catalina's door when Red Rock and Housen came walking around the corner. Red Rock asks her, quote, where's the Mexican that stays upstairs? Jen says Eve is asleep. Red Rock starts prodding her and asking what's wrong, and Jen eventually gets him to walk away. That was her first written statement. Several versions and hours of interrogation later, she gives her second written statement, the confession. And one of the few consistencies between the two is this interaction with Red Rock. In this version, Jen is on her way back from Janet's when she runs into Ernest and Tim. From the confession, Ernest told me to go and knock on her front door. I went to knock on the front door and Ernest and Tim were by the steps. I knocked on the front door and she responded, who is it? I said, it's your neighbor from upstairs. The woman said, what do you want? I was trying to think of something to say when a person I know in the complex called Red Rock came around the corner. Red Rock asked me about the Mexican that stayed upstairs. I said, who, Eva? He said, yeah, that's her name. I told him she was asleep. I told him to go on. Red Rock kept asking me questions, and I told him to go on. Red Rock had some other dude with him, and they walked off. Everything surrounding the interaction with Red Rock has changed here. Now, Ernest and Tim are outside, and she's knocking to figure out if Catalina is home. But one thing remains exactly the same. 
Red Rock. Again, so she's knocking on the door. And note that she makes a point to say that she was trying to think of something to say at the exact moment that Red Rock approached. I just read right by that the first several times I looked at the statement, but actually I think it could be an important element of Jennifer's statement analysis. In both statements, there's a lot of commotion going on. In version 1, there's a voice inside saying everything's okay as Jen is desperately banging on the door trying to get in. And then just before Red Rock walks up, in this version, the voice stops answering her. And then in version 2, Catalina is asking her what she wants, and as Red Rock is walking up, Jen is trying to think of what to say. In both versions, she makes a point to clarify that she's not saying anything when Red Rock arrives. It could be that she knows she actually was not talking when he showed up, so in either version, she's making sure that that detail is consistent, or a more psychoanalytical theory might be that she's going out of her way to explain why she's not talking, because maybe she feels guilty or is embarrassed about the fact that she was being quiet. I'm not saying that means anything nefarious, it's just something that grabbed my attention. Quote, I was thinking what to say, isn't a detail that I would expect to see in a statement like this. The Red Rock section, however, is still spot on. She's knocking on the door under the stairs. He approaches with Housen and asks about the Mexican. Jen says she's sleeping and then shoes him away. But that's Jen's version. So let's take a look at what Red Rock himself had to say. He was first interviewed on the day of the murder at the scene by Detective Swainson. And this is where we find out that Red Rock's real name is Broderick Kent Smith. From the report. Officer Peekert indicated that two black males were said to be near the apartment earlier. Officer Peeker found these two males in the crowd that had gathered and brought them to this investigator. Officer interviewed each one of them separately. Red Rock, Broderick Smith, indicated that his friend, House and Ram, came over to his house earlier this morning. Red Rock said that he had made plans to assist a woman in the complex move furniture. Red Rock and his friends walked to Wanda's apartment but did not find her car anywhere around. Wanda's apartment is allegedly in the vicinity of the complainant's apartment. After deciding that Wanda was not at home, Red Rock said to Ram that he wanted to visit the Mexican girl that lives in apartment number 58. The two men walked to the apartment, and when they got there, they found Jen under the stairs near the complainant's apartment door. Red Rock described her actions as nervous while at the same time trying to get Red Rock to leave. Jen told Red Rock that Eva was asleep and not to bother her. The men left the area, but 20 to 30 minutes later, they went back to Wanda's apartment to see if she was home yet to move her furniture. When they got to the area, a guy he knows from the complex said that they had found a body in an apartment. When they got to the area of the commotion, they realized that this is the apartment they observed Jen outside at the door. Red Rock's story is spot-on consistent with Jennifer. He's walking up to, quote, visit the Mexican girl that lives in apartment number 58, and he finds Jen under the stairs near Catalina's door. Jen then tells him that Eve's asleep, and she tries to get him to leave. Then he and Housen leave the area. Red Rock says that he and Housen were gone for about 20 to 30 minutes before they returned to Wanda's and ran into someone who told them that a body had been found. Now, this is a statement that I would love to be able to use for our ever-changing timeline, but the problem is that any time given by a witness without an anchor isn't much use to us. I had Red Rock said that he remembered looking at his watch, or that a particular TV show was on when he got back to his apartment, or anything like that, then we may be able to rely on the 20-30 to 30 minute estimate. But even still, he said that the man that he knows already knew that a body had been found at that point. So that could have happened an hour after the murder, or 10 minutes after the paramedics arrived on scene. 
it's really not much help, even if the 20 to 30 minute window was accurate. Next up, we have another confirmation of Red Rock's story and another timing issue in June Sage's statement, right after a short break. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. June Sage was questioned by Officer Piekert on the morning of Catalina's murder. She doesn't mention Red Rock or Housen by name, but given her description, it sure seems a lot like that's who she saw. From the report, June continued by saying that around 9.30 a.m. or so, somebody knocked on her front door. When she got to the door, she looked out the peephole. Outside, she observed a young black female that she described as short, disarray, and two-toned hair which was pulled back. The female was wearing a black t-shirt. She was quite sure that the young girl found at the door is one of the girls from the upstairs apartment. June Sage did not open the door or respond to the visitor. She then watched the young girl go to her neighbor's apartment and begin knocking on the complainant's door. A few minutes later, she observed two or three black males come into the same area. The black males left, and she left the door's peephole. A few moments later, June Sage described that it sounded like something was being thrown around in her neighbor's apartment, followed by a blood-curdling scream coming from the apartment. Then it got quiet. So June sees who it would seem is Jennifer knocking on her door and not saying anything. June watches her through the peephole and then sees her move over to Catalina's and start knocking there. June never says anything about hearing Jennifer say anything while at either door. She just sees and presumably hears the knocking. And I say that she likely heard the knocking on Catalina's door because I don't think she could actually see what she was doing at her neighbor's door through the peephole. She then sees two or three black males come into the area, then she sees them leave. And that's when she leaves the people. Now my assumption has been that what June sees is Red Rock and Housen approaching and then leaving. But there are a couple things left out. Namely, she never says that she saw Jennifer and the men talking or interacting together. She actually never even says that the, quote, young girl was still there when the men approached. 
Now, I know that June seems to confirm Red Rock's story, and I still think that's likely the case, but at the same time, we do need to analyze what was actually said. She said that she saw the young girl, who she supposedly describes while looking through a fisheye peephole in the exact same way that is documented in every single witness statement that were all typed up after Jennifer was arrested. Short, two-toned hair that's pulled back with a black t-shirt. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Eyewitness identification is the absolute least reliable form of evidence. And yet, everyone supposedly nails Jennifer's description exactly. Except for the fact, by the way, that Jennifer never says she was wearing a black t-shirt. But let's look at how she's described by different people. So we have an elderly woman looking through a fish-eyed peephole sees a, quote, short black girl with two-toned hair that was pulled back wearing a black t-shirt. Now, June is not put on the stand to testify at trial, but that's what's written in the report saying that that's what she said. Let me give you a better example. Zaragoza Garza tells Swainton that the girl he saw from over 150 feet away while driving was, quote, a black female, young, black hair that was highlighted with browns and put into a ponytail and was wearing a black t-shirt. And Garza does actually testify at trial, and lo and behold, what's written in the report is not the same as what he describes seeing when he's on the stand. So Swainson writes in his report that Mr. Garza had described the person he saw in that way, but when we actually hear from the man himself, that's not what he described at all. And both reports, again, are typed out a week after Jennifer's arrest, as is the case with nearly every witness statement in the file. All I'm getting at here is that there is a possibility that June did not see Jennifer, Red Rock, or Housen that morning. Her testimony would be the easiest of all to twist into a guilty narrative at trial, and yet the state chose not to call her. We have to wonder why. I think it's possible that she could have told police that she saw someone who didn't fit the boilerplate description of Jennifer, and it took a little tweaking to make the statement fit the police narrative. What if what she actually said was the same thing that Garza actually testified to in his own words? What if June said that she saw a lighter-skinned black woman in her 20s wearing a collared shirt? With all that being said, I realize that, yeah, it's bordering a little bit on conspiracy theory. But I also don't think that it's too far-fetched to consider that what's documented in the report isn't what June actually said. I think that we know that to be true in Zaragoza Garza's case. I mean, he testified under oath that what was written in the report is not what he actually saw. But we'll leave a pin in that for now and continue on with our look at Red Rock and Housen. And next up is Red Rock's written statement, taken about a week after the murder. Broderick Kent Smith, a.k.a. Red Rock, black male, 36 years old. I have attained 11 years of formal education. I am self-employed. I was born in Houston, Texas. I have a twin brother named Roderick Kent Smith. I have another brother named Keith and a sister named Phyllis. They are also twins. I went to school through the 11th grade, and I presently live with my mother and father at the Green Arbor Apartments, unit number 208. My friends call me Red Rock. 
I'm taking medication as I was diagnosed as having schizophrenia when I was 15 years old. I came over to the office at the Green Arbor Apartments this morning to speak with Sergeant Allen and give a statement. I spoke with Sergeant Allen's partner last week on Tuesday a week ago because investigators were at the apartments looking into the death of a woman. On Tuesday morning, October 29, 1996, a friend of mine named Michael came over that morning. Michael rides an orange bicycle. I told Michael that I needed to help a woman move this morning. The woman is named Wanda. Wanda lives behind the office in an upstairs apartment. I walked from my apartment, number 208, and came across a sidewalk behind the office to Wanda's apartment. I did not see her car. I told Michael it doesn't look like she's home. I told Michael, let's go over and see a friend of mine named Eva. Now let me point out here that this is the one discrepancy in Red Rock's statement. It was pretty clear in his first statement that he didn't know Eva's name. And it's abundantly clear in Jennifer's statements that he didn't know Eva's name. But now when he's retelling the story with Detective Allen, the same guy that put together Jennifer's confession, in this statement he says, quote, I told Michael, let's go over and see a friend of mine named Eva. Let's continue. We walked over to Eva's apartment. Eva lives above the woman that was found dead. I started up the steps and Michael was on his bicycle at the foot of the steps. As I going up the steps, I noticed this young black girl named Jen underneath the stairs by the front door where this woman lived. Jen had her back against the door. I asked Jen where her friend was at, and she told me that she was asleep. Jen said, what do you want? I told her nothing. I might hook up with her later on. I told her I had a job later on. She said, why don't you just go? I said, for what? And she said, just go. Michael was talking about Jen and wanted to know who she was. Jen did not tell us anything was going on in the woman's apartment. Jen was wearing a t-shirt. I think it was black. Jen had on a pair of shorts. I don't know what color they were. We go back to my apartment. I drank some coffee and Michael ate potato chips. We were just talking and smoked a cigarette. We left my apartment and went back over to Wanda's. She was home this time. I asked her if she was ready to move. I saw Juan. Juan is a maintenance man at the apartments. I got a cigarette from Juan. I saw another person named Ralph who lives with a woman named Jennifer. I was standing on Wanda's steps when Ralph appeared and Ralph said someone must have got killed because he saw a policeman over by an apartment. Michael, Wanda, and I walked over to the location and found out that a woman had been killed. I heard someone talking and they said they heard screams and the woman inside said she had just fell. So the basics of Red Rock's written statement, again, line up perfectly with his oral interview from a week earlier, as well as both of Jennifer's statements. Red Rock starts to head up Eva's steps. He sees Jennifer by Catalina's door. He asks her where Eva is, and Jen says Eva's sleeping. And then she tells Red Rock to leave. At that point, he and Housen take off. It's all very consistent. However, there is some interesting new information in this statement. First of all, the most obvious... Red Rock refers to Housen as Michael, which is really no big deal. It's actually Housen's middle name. But what's interesting about it is the fact that both KD and Youngster mention the name Mike. First, Youngster says that a police officer on the morning of the murder stopped him and asked him about Mike. Then KD tells Swainson in his written statement the next day that he heard Catalina, or the voice inside the apartment, say, let me go, Mike. Now, for starters, this is just another indication that KD's story is not true. When he talks about a fake voice calling out from inside, first we read that the unknown voice from inside told him to go back upstairs, and of course the person inside would have no way of knowing that they came from upstairs, and secondly, he's saying that the voice he's hearing was a man's voice impersonating an old lady, 
But then he says he heard the voice say, let go of me, Mike. If Mike is one of the killers, why is the fake voice, who's another one of the offenders, telling Mike to let him go in the fake voice? So this is my theory about Mike. I think that the officers on the scene talked to Red Rock, and he told the officers that he was with his friend Michael. But Housen wasn't standing out front at that point, so the cops started asking around to see if anyone had seen Mike. That's when they stop Youngster and ask if he knows where Mike is. Katie hears this, and in a panic, he adds the name Mike to his narrative. If you read his statement, you can tell it's kind of an afterthought thrown in there at the end. I think he's trying to cover for Eva, who already asked him to lie for her, and since he knows that the police were looking for a guy named Mike, why not say that he heard someone say, let go of me, Mike? And could be I'm totally off base with that, but in any case, that's my current working theory on the Mike situation. The second thing that I find interesting is that Red Rock says that he gets a cigarette from Juan, the maintenance man, before Ralph tells him about the police being on scene. I'm not sure that it really means anything at all. I just find it a little peculiar that Juan, who was on the scene with Keith, didn't mention any of the activity. It seems like it would be kind of the talk of the complex at that point. But then again, from what Housen says, Red Rock tends to get under people's skin. So it's definitely a possibility that Juan gave him the cigarette to shut him up and then got away from him as soon as possible so that he wouldn't get caught up in a conversation. And speaking of Housen, let's now move on to his statements. Housen Michael Ram was 19 years old at the time of the murder. He gave an oral interview to Detective Swainson on the scene on the day of the murder. This is the report from that statement. Housen Ram is a tall black male, 6 foot 2, 180 pounds, white muscle shirt and dark colored slacks. Housen indicated in his oral interview that he came to visit his friend Red Rock. Housen at one time lived in this complex and knew Red Rock from that time. Housen moved to the Burke address a few months ago. He rode his bicycle to Green Arbor because his neighborhood is too boring. Red Rock told him that he was going to help a lady move some furniture from her apartment. Housen did not know the lady or the apartment, but he followed Red Rock to the location. Red Rock told him that the lady's car was not around, so they went across the parking lot and were heading to a girl's apartment. Housen had no idea where they were going, but he tagged along. Housen was under the impression that Red Rock was going to meet up with a girl and attempt to get some sex. When they got to the apartment building, Red Rock was heading up the stairs. Housen stopped at the end of the walkway where it meets the stairs. Standing under the stairs near the complainant's front door was a black female. The female had her hair pulled back and highlighted with color. Housen described her clothing as a black t-shirt and black jeans. Housen described her actions as looking through the steps of the stairway. Housen stated that he was too far from the two as they spoke to one another, but he could tell that the girl was trying to get rid of Red Rock. Housen indicated that this is not unusual for people to treat Red Rock in this fashion. Housen indicated that Red Rock would get on other people's nerves, so he accepted what the woman was doing as usual. An agreement was made to meet this witness at a later time to obtain a written statement. Another statement, same story. Housen says he meets up with Red Rock, they go help a lady move, she's not home, so they head over to meet up with a girl. As Red Rock is heading up the stairs, there's a black girl with two-toned hair pulled back wearing a black t-shirt, sound familiar? under the stairs. She and Red Rock exchange words, and the girl shoes him away. Again, he's on the money with his version of events. 
which again is a pretty good indicator when everybody is talking about physical movements and they all remember it happening the same way, real good indicator that that's a truthful statement. And again here, I want to point out that we see the exact same description of Jennifer. This time, not from 150 feet away in a moving vehicle and not looking through a fish-eyed peephole, but here we have a 19-year-old boy looking at a girl under the stairs, through the stairs, in the shadows, and he looks closely enough to see and remember and report the highlights in her hair. And again, this report was written after Jennifer's arrest. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that Jennifer wasn't there when the interaction with Red Rock took place. She clearly was. She says so herself in both her statements. What I'm pointing out is that there is this extreme oddity in the fact that every single eyewitness describes Jennifer in the exact same way. Most of them without a clear view of her. And then none of the people that described her that way were brought in to testify at trial. Except Garza, who again contradicts what Swainson wrote in his report. I'll explain in the closing of today's episode why all of this is relevant. But for now, let's hit the final point of our anchor, and that's Housen's written statement. Housen gave his written statement on Saturday, November 2nd, a couple days after Jennifer's arrest. Quote, My name is Housen Michael Ram. I am a black male and I am 19 years old. I have attained nine years of formal education. I am unemployed at this time and I'm currently located at my home speaking to officers from the Houston Police Department Homicide Division. I'm here to provide information regarding the events which took place at the Green Arbor Apartments. Now, something I literally just noticed, this isn't in the script, I noticed it as I was reading this, is that Housen is at home giving this, quote, written statement. And it's all typed up by officers, but he didn't sign it, like Jennifer's. So they're calling this a written statement, It's written out as though he's speaking, but I don't think that it was actually written then and there. I don't think that it was typed up, printed, and signed by Housen. Just something to remember. Back to the statement. On Tuesday, October 29, 1996, I left my house in Pasadena and rode my red bicycle to visit a friend of mine in the Green Arbor Apartments. At one time, I lived in those apartments in apartment number 224. I moved away from there in early September of this year. One of my friends, Red Rock, whose real name is Broderick, lives in the front of the Green Arbor apartment complex. I go over to the apartments just to hang out with him. On that morning, he, Red Rock, said that he was going to help a woman move from her apartment. So we went to the apartment to see if she was home. When we got to the area, Red Rock did not see her car anywhere around. So we didn't go to her apartment. The apartment is close to the main drive and the apartment management office. While in the area, Red Rock says that there is a girl he wants to mess around with. I agree to go over to the apartment with him. We crossed the main drive and were headed to the apartment. I don't know who he was planning on visiting, but I go along. I get to the apartment building, and Red Rock begins to go up the stairs to the second floor. I stopped at the end of the sidewalk near the stairs. I see a girl wearing a black t-shirt and black shorts standing under the stairway. Officer Swainson handed me a photo of the black female. I immediately identified her as the woman under the steps. The girl stopped Red Rock as he was going up the steps. She motioned for both of us to go away. She looked at me and said, tell your friend to go away. Red Rock spoke to her for a few minutes, and then we decided to leave. I don't know what was said between the two of them. So we left and walked back to Red Rock's apartment. 
We had a smoke and stayed in the apartment for about 25 to 30 minutes, and after that we decided to go check on the lady's apartment to see if we could help her with moving her furniture. While we were headed that direction, Ralph, a white guy knowing the complex, said that the ambulance was over in the apartment complex and that a body was found. So we head in that direction, and when we get there, we saw an ambulance, several police officers, and many people. While waiting there watching all the happenings, I saw the same black girl wearing the black t-shirt and black shorts as part of the crowd. I also realized that this was the same apartment that Red Rock and I came to just 30 minutes ago. I stayed there and was eventually interviewed by these investigators. I saw the detectives interviewing several people, including the female wearing the black t-shirt, except the girl was now wearing blue jeans and not black shorts that she had on earlier. I didn't know what had happened, but I do know that she was the person I saw under the steps just before the ambulance arrived. On that day, I was wearing a white muscle t-shirt and blue jeans. Red Rock was wearing gray pants, a gray sweatpant jacket, and a black cap. Once again, we have the exact same story. I spoke to people who were convinced of two things. One, that this interaction never occurred at all, which I do not believe. The fact that Jennifer includes this in her narrative in both statements, I think is pretty proof positive that she did talk to Red Rock that morning. It would take a pretty massive and incredible level of conspiracy for all of this to be made up. My process for evaluating these statements is always the same. Times are pointless in witness statements unless there's some sort of an anchor. And it's an indicator of truthfulness when multiple witnesses can describe a series of physical movements the same across all of their statements when their statements are taking at different places and different times. This is the reason that I'm convinced that Jen did talk to Red Rock that morning and also the reason I'm convinced that there never was a fake voice. The second thing that's been said to me by several people is that Red Rock and Housen are good suspects for the murder. Like I said, there was a time when I thought so too. But I actually talked to someone who I have a lot of respect for just yesterday that is convinced that Red Rock and Housen killed Catalina. I'm telling you, I just don't see it. Jennifer, by her own admission, does not like Red Rock. She told the police that he's a dope fiend. If she did in fact see him that morning and he was involved in the murder, I don't see how she could have not known that. And if she did know that, she'd be singing like a canary. That being said, we still need to see this thing all the way through and take a look at the criminal records of both Red Rock and Housen. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. At the time of the murder, Red Rock was 36 years old and Housen was 19. Neither of them had any violent criminal history before the murder. In fact, as much as Red Rock may seem kind of like a shady character, he actually only has one criminal charge in his entire life, and it happened five years before the murder. In 1991, Red Rock was arrested and charged with possession of marijuana and delivery of less than a quarter of an ounce of marijuana. And that's it. When I searched his record, at first glance, it did seem like he had a hell of a rap sheet. But you got to be careful. There's another Broderick Smith with an extensive criminal record in Harris County, but it's not Red Rock. This guy has a different middle name. Red Rock's middle name is Kent and a different birthday. Red Rock was born in 1960. Red Rock also has a twin brother with quite a record. 
Roderick, not Broderick, has spent his fair share of time in jail. But Broderick hasn't. Other than one marijuana charge, he's as clean as a whistle. Housen was first arrested two years before the murder for a misdemeanor criminal mischief. He was 17 at the time. He was arrested again three years after the murder in 1999 for a misdemeanor assault with bodily injury. And unfortunately, there are no details for this or actually any of his charges available on the Harris County website. After that, Housen seems to have stayed out of trouble for over a decade. He's arrested for another misdemeanor in 2012. This time the charge was evading arrest. And then the big one. Housen is in prison right now for two charges from 2018. 22 years after Catalina's murder, Housen was charged with a May 6, 2018 attempted sexual assault and a sexual assault on July 9th of that same year. He pled guilty to the charges in 2019 and was given a combined sentence for both of seven years in prison. House and Ram obviously is not a good guy. Assuming that his conviction was the result of an actual sexual assault, he's sitting exactly where he deserves to be right now. But I don't see anything in his history that makes me think he had anything to do with Catalina's murder. I mean, yeah, he has an assault with injury, but it was a misdemeanor, so it was nothing serious, nothing like what happened to Catalina. And then he sexually assaulted someone over two decades after the murder which I hardly believe is indicative of the type of person that he was at 19 years old. And besides that, rape and murder are two very different offenses committed for two very different reasons. Now, I don't want Housen hanging around my kids, but I also don't think that he killed Catalina. Now, let's take a look back at what we can discern from the Red Rock encounter. It's something that I think we can definitely say happened. But the big question is, when did it happen? There are obviously very different inferences depending on if it happened before or after the murder. If it happened just before the murder, then it would seem like Jennifer's got to be involved. Now, if it happened a long time before the murder, like, say, an hour before the murder, then it could really mean anything. Maybe Jen was asking to use the phone. And for what it's worth, I don't believe that for a second. If that was the case, her knocking to use a phone would have been included in at least one of her versions of events. In every version, she went straight to Janet's to use the phone. So, I don't buy that one. But if Jen ran into Red Rock after the murder, it would actually fit with her very first statement. At least a portion of the statement. She says that she's walking back from Janet's when she sees Eva outside yelling at Catalina's apartment. She then says that she ran up to Catalina's door because, quote, she didn't know what was going on. Then she started knocking to see if everything was okay. In that version, this is when Red Rock and Housen arrive on the scene, which would make perfect sense. But the curveball comes in with June Sage. Now, we've been assuming, or at least I've been assuming, that what June Sage witnessed was this encounter with Red Rock. And we believe that because she describes Jennifer just like everyone else. So it has to be her, right? But what if it wasn't? There is plenty of evidence to at least support the hypothesis that June didn't actually describe Jennifer as being short with two-toned hair pulled in a ponytail and wearing a black t-shirt. So what I want to do, let's take a second look at her statement without the description of Jennifer. 
Because quite frankly, I don't believe that's what she said. What does she actually say outside of that description? June says, quote, Around 9.30 or so, someone knocked on her front door. When she got to the door, she looked out the peephole. Outside, she observed a young black female. June Sage did not open the door or respond to the visitor. She then watched the young girl go to her neighbor's apartment and begin knocking on Catalina's door. Here's the first problem. Jen never says in any version of any statement that she knocked on June's door first. In every version, she says that she went straight to Catalina's door, even in her confession. In fact, in her first statement, she says that she ran to Catalina's door. There's just no utility in her saying that she knocked in one door and not the other. It doesn't help her or hurt her in either way. But in her first version, she's completely innocent, right? In that first statement? And she says nothing about knocking on June's door. And in her final version, she's confessing, air quotes. And again, she says she went straight to Catalina's door. And it's not a recall issue. I think that we've done a pretty good job of proving today that Jen's recall of actual events is pretty damn good. She gets every detail exactly right about her chat with Red Rock. So why does Jen never say anything about knocking on June's door? June goes on to say, quote, A few minutes later, June observed two or three black males come into the same area. The black males left, and then she left the door's peephole. A few moments later, June described that it sounded like something was being thrown around in the neighbor's apartment, followed by a blood-curdling scream. Listen closely to what she's saying. She says two or three black males come into the same area, and then they left. What's missing here? She doesn't say which direction the black males came from. They came from the direction of the office, then it may have been Red Rock and Housen. But if they came from the other direction and went out of sight in the same direction, that would put them right next to Catalina's patio. And let's take this crazy theory a step further. June says the two or three men came into the area. Does she not notice that Housen is on a bike? From Red Rock's written statement, quote, I started up the steps and Michael was on his bicycle at the foot of the steps. And this is from Youngster's statement. And as I said, it seems as though he did see the two men, but I think likely through a window. But he does describe them pretty well. He says, quote, I think she was saying it to the two men who were near there. One of the men was about 19 or 20 years old and was sitting on a mountain bike. If June Sage actually saw Jennifer Red Rock and Housen through her peephole, then she would have seen two men, one on a bike, approach the scene. One of the men walked halfway up the stairs and then started talking to Jennifer. Then she would have seen the two men leave, and again, one of whom was on a bike. But she describes two or three black men, quote, come into the area and then leave. Nothing about a bike, nothing about one of them walking up the stairs, and nothing about them talking to the black female that was under the stairs. I mean, forget the bike. Red Rock walked up the stairs to Eva's apartment. And do we actually think that June wouldn't have mentioned that? Or described the situation as them just coming into the area and leaving? I don't buy it. I don't believe that June gave that detailed description of Jennifer through the peephole. And I don't believe that the men that she saw were Red Rock and Housen. 
and things get even more interesting as I continue to dig through the DA file. As it turns out, Keith Truesdale actually called the police on Eva and the gang the night before the murder. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Who's the tea? Oh, that's for me, thanks. And the fish fingers. Me, please. Over here, you two. <laughs> Dobby's restaurants have great deals on lots of tasty products. That's it. Mind your backs, please. <laughs> Making them feel even greater. Left a bit careful of that. So kids' meals feel larger than dining tables. Set it down gently, gently. Whoa! Find great value every day in store, like kids eat free. After all, spring's a big deal at Dobby's Garden Centres. Anything else? Have you got a bigger fork?